This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Chris Macklin. Now, Chris began his career as a paramedic and was ultimately one of the medics on scene during the Columbine shooting. His career path then transitioned into the world of the fire service where he joined South Metro Fire Department in the Denver area and was ultimately one of the firefighters who spearheaded not only the physical but also the mental health program within his department. So we discuss a host of topics from the trauma that he carried through from that shooting, the creation of peer support, finding wellness and strength and conditioning experts and bringing them into their department, how proactivity can save departments money, sleep deprivation, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 750 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Chris Macklin. Enjoy. Well, Chris, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this afternoon? I am in a suburb of Denver, Colorado, in uh, unincorporated Douglas County, just south of Denver. 
Beautiful. Well, I know that that's been your place of work for a long time now. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah, so I was born in Austin, Texas. Well, my father was going to college there. Um, my, my, we, my, my father was a career uh, military. He was in the Air Force. He retired a colonel in about 2001, uh, right before 9-11. Uh, so obviously, as a, as a small child, we moved around quite a bit. Um, we were in Grand Forks, North Dakota. My at, at the time, my father was a young missile silo lieutenant, um, and uh, at that time, my parents got divorced, and we moved back to Denver, where my mom was originally from, when I was about five years old. And so, I've really resided in the Denver metropolitan area. Go ahead. I was going to say I took a breath. You could see it. <laughs> um, I was just going to say with with someone in charge of missiles, you're talking about 20, 30 years ago. Did he have any kind of experience as far as the whole Star Wars, you know, missile crisis that we kind of experienced when we were young? I think as a young man, he did. Right. He watched he watched that happen um, and materialize his my my paternal grandfather was also a career in the military. He started in the army air corps right before world war two. Um, and then also retired a colonel. In fact, you know, my dad was born in Washington, DC, uh, before it was the Pentagon, it was called the war department. And so my dad was born there, um, at the very end of world war two. Yeah. So he, he had those experience. And in fact, when you, when you bring that up, he spent the rest of his career in the intelligence, um, agency within the air force. And so, um, yeah, for sure in that space. And, uh, and when the iron curtain was up a lot of, uh, surveillance of the, the Soviet union, right? So with that, you've got two generations of military, multi-generational trauma, I think is, is one of the least discussed elements of addiction. And some of the things that we see today, were there any elements of either of their service that now with this mental health lens that you have looking back you saw any kind of side effects of their service i don't think so from my my father's perspective um you know he he did you know he was when nato was bomb, bombing botsnia herzegovina he was in theater and an intelligence officer in that mission but never in theater in a different way where my grandfather was um during world war ii and so for sure i think what i saw in my grandfather was that stoicism and, and, and um, I have an interesting story. So my, my grandfather um, was in Newfoundland before, uh, before the U.S. entered World War II. So we were doing surveillance in the North Atlantic, part of the Lend-Lease program that was going on. And there was a meeting at sea that was supposed to be secret and no, no photographers. And so my grandfather's uh, surveillance unit went out to sea, delivered um, a young lieutenant who was part of his team, um, and then returned. And the, the English had brought cameras. And so they asked my grandfather to return to deliver cameras so they could document the event. Um, and, and, and in that event, um, was, we, this is why I go with, so my grandfather never shared his stories about World War II. And when he moved from Fort Worth, Texas to San Antonio in his 80s, my father found his footlocker and we found these pictures. And one of the first most remarkable pictures was my my grandfather as a young lieutenant colonel standing between um, Winston Churchill and FDR on that ship. And so today that's our, we call that the Macklin big three picture, um, a picture that we cherish, but it speaks to that, that stoicism of that generation and never, never talking about what they saw and experienced. And so it wasn't until he was in his eighties and in nineties, he lived to be 96 that he, he finally shared his, 
his experiences um, from that time in his life. And if you're okay revealing that, like what were some of the things that he was finally able to talk to about, I mean, 70 plus years later? Mostly it was really, you know, he never got, he was never, he wasn't dark and he um, still private, but at least sharing those experiences, those, you know, telling us about his career, because I didn't know any of those things. And so being able to walk through being a young uh, Army Air Corps lieutenant with a new commission before the war, flying for um, Pan Am from Miami to Rio, um, his bombing missions in North Africa. And I remember one of the things that he shared he was going to be, he was offered to be um, the commander of the 29th bombing wing, which was bombing Europe at the time. And, and I don't remember, this is, this is a, I don't remember exactly what he said at this time, but he said he was going to be, let's say the 12th commander of that unit that year because they had been shot down. And so he had that option or an option to, to come back to Washington DC and work at the war department. And, and in that he, he admitted that he chose, he chose his wife and um, returned back. And that's, and that's when he started his family. Beautiful. So. Uh, see, it's so sad for two reasons. Firstly, that so many of these men and women felt like they couldn't open up whatever, you know, the, the generational kind of, uh, um, culture then was that that you you know rolled up your sleeves and you know just got back to work but you know you look back now at these multi-generational elements and a lot of times when I hear what granddad was like it's not what we carry you know almost caricature as the greatest generation this you know stoic man that was absolutely fine and just got on with it they were hurting a lot of them you know and right. then and then the other side is that they weren't able to really tell the stories of what they did for this country, you know, and that was truly fighting for freedom. Like no one can argue that. I mean, especially being, being from England myself. I mean, that was a hundred percent. I speak English because of the courage of the allied nations. So the inability to offload the trauma, and even, even I think there's a a misunderstanding that every world war two warfighter came back to a ticker tape parade. And a lot of them didn't. And so they didn't have that kind of transitional period. And I think a lot, a lot more struggled than we give credit for. Right. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. So what about you know, your my, mom? So my mother, uh, she was, uh, she's, I, I want to say maybe six, six, seven years younger than my father. Um, they eloped. Um, I think she had just graduated from high school and he was um, um at the air Academy down in Colorado Springs and they eloped to get married. Um, then that's what ended up driving them to Texas for where he, where he, where he went to the university of Texas. Um, I'm not, you know, my mom, my mom was an artist, um, very creative. Um, it's funny. My wife just asked me this the other day. We were, we were talking about some things and she asked if my, if my, uh, you know, if, if my mother was comforting, to me or if my mother was loving to me. And it's funny because you, you don't think about those things as a, as a man, I think in particular, right? She was my mother. Um, so there were, I had two siblings, one older, one younger. We grew up in a small one bedroom house um, in the foothills here, just outside of Denver and one bedroom, one bathroom, four people. So you can imagine that. And my mom was about taking care of her three children. She, she was a secretary her entire career. She worked for the United States federal government in their uh, geological survey, uh, a secretary to about 12 different scientists doing research, you know, and that, that was a different generation. Right. And, but her, her focus and primary goal was just making sure that we had food on the table and that we could participate in sports and play instruments and what have you. And she spent her whole life just worrying and caring about her children. But it's funny, you know, when my wife asked me that it was just a, a week or two ago and, I never, I have, no one's ever asked me that before. And when you think back of it, 
back on it, you know, she wasn't, well, she cared for us so deeply and made sure we were provided for, you know, she, she wasn't comforting the way that you, you, you think. And I think that's, you know, her father. So my, so my maternal grandfather joined the United States Marine Corps at 18. Um, and he, so in, they had buddy enlistments. I'm sure you're familiar with that. And so, um, so eight of his friends here, so he was, he, he was born on a farm, moved to Colorado, still lived on a farm out, out in the country. Um, and eight of his friends enlisted together and three, three came home and they all went to the Pacific. And so, um, I think that in, he, he was a bit of a drinker, um, and he was incredibly private too. And so I think that was, and, and my mother lost her, her, uh, her sibling. So she had a, a young sister named Nancy who was hit and killed by a car in kindergarten. And she was hit and killed in front of my grandmother, let out on the wrong side of the car, across the street. The other vehicle didn't see her, hit and killed her. And so again, you go back in time, my grandmother wasn't treated with modern, you know, psychological efforts. And so she was, she was hospitalized for 30 days and went on, underwent shock therapy. So that's the household my mom was raised in. So to backtrack all that way, just like you said, that's now I know why my mom was the way she was because she didn't have those type of experience from her parents, right? It's interesting. My both of my grandparents, my dad and my mom's side, neither of them, sorry, both my grandmothers, neither of them were maternal. And again, you don't think of that when you're a kid, it's your grandma. But actually, now when I look back, they were very stern, cold women, both of them, you know, and I now yes. look at the impact of that on my parents. And my mom is very, loving affectionately physically but there are definitely some some side effects of how she was raised and the same with my dad so uh yeah it's 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 only when you've really kind of unraveled this whole thing and i know you've been doing this you know, a lot longer than i have but you start to look at the world with such a different view and the phrase that really rings true to me that i've heard other people use is when you look at someone we used to say what's wrong with that person now you say what happened to that person it totally changes your perspective yeah, I agree with that. We we talk a lot. I, I don't know if I shared this with you previously. Um, was one of our union leaders, you know, for about six to eight years, and so you represent folks in discipline. You know, you 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 navigate. You help folks navigate those difficult experiences. And one of one of my um, and one of my best friends at the fire department, who was on the union executive board with me, always always said that that everyone has a storm, right? And but that storm could have been like you, like we talk about, it could have been in their childhood. It could have been their upbringing and how that storm always affects their current circumstances. Right. So whether it's poor performance at work or trouble at home or trouble, how all those things are intertwined together. Absolutely. Well, you talked about your mom helping you with the sports side. So what were you playing when you were young? Well, I love, so we were, we, because we were strapped financially um, when I, at my age growing up, soccer was inexpensive, right? Um, because back then it was a, a pair of boots and shorts um, and you didn't have to buy a football helmet or pads or a baseball mitt. And so it was affordable for us. And so, I, and then having an older brother who started to play, um, I think as soon as we moved back to Colorado, so he was four years older than me. Um, and being a single mom, my mother used my older brother's soccer practices to babysit me. So I was just dropped off and that's, and so I just watched that and enjoyed it. And, and when you play with boys that are, 
a few years older than you, you get, you, you know, you, you do better in your own age group. And that's really what I always love to do. So, um, to I'm 53 today and, uh, I'm playing in my old man Sunday league, uh, you know, still. So that's where I find my, you know, I'm sure you've seen these, there's these memes maybe on Instagram, but there's one in particular that always draws me in, which is, it's a soccer meme. And it's, a it's the noise of the city and the bustle and, voices in your head and it's it's just all you see is a a player running out on the pitch with the ball in front of them and then all the sound goes away and the focus is right there and I'll be candid that's that that's what that does for me so not only the enjoyment of playing but you know I, I get quiet and just enjoy being present so it's interesting you say that as well I've had this conversation with many people on the show some were high level athletes as children some are coaches but when I came here from the UK, where football and soccer is our, you know, primary sport, really, um, you come to the US, you you see baseball and, and football, especially where these kids become incredible athletes, but then there's a steep drop off at graduation, whether it's they're burned out, they're hurt, you know, a combination of, you know, whatever it is. And then you go from elite athletes in high school, college to a lot of the what I call Uncle Rico stories where I could have, should have been, and now they're very deconditioned and obese. And it's very sad. And this is purely an observation that breaks my heart. When I look at a lot of other countries, especially the game of football, soccer, you play it through school. I mean, you talked about inexpensive. All we had was the sweatshirts that we wore that became goalposts and a ball. That's all we needed. You know, you could do it barefoot, sneakers, whatever. Um, yeah. And so we played, and yes, there are some elite, football players in the uk but most high school kids are playing you know they're playing other schools and stuff but that's it they're not doing you know soccer camps and drills at home and you know all this stuff but then when people graduate they keep playing football and it carries on like you said pub leagues weekend leagues you know whatever um what is it that allowed you to carry on playing when you personally got past college and i mean excuse me high school and or college no, it was just truly that that pure enjoyment of doing it and staying connected with, um, you know, mostly men, but and some some women I went to high school with that can you know stayed in the area and um, continued to play. Um, it was just something that you know you, connection and um, you're passionate about. Um, and and today, honestly, what keep what <clears throat> well, what I learned in Denver, Denver's a uh, there's a there's a lot of um, uh, foreigners, right in, in Denver, right, and so we have from uh, from around the world, right, and so there was a park in Denver called Washington Park, and I think I was about twenty when I started playing there, and they there was a Tuesday night and a Thursday night pickup league there, and that that pickup was predominantly, um, you know, men and women from from other places in the world, and so. I really started to enjoy that experience as well, right? So, like today, the the team I play on, I think that we have three to four. We have four men on my team that are that are U.S. born, right? The rest we've got five or six Chileans and a couple. You know, we've got a Colombian and a and a and a, a Portuguese, and um, it's it's fun, right? Uh, a couple a couple Brazilians, and it's a it's a fun mix, right? And I'm sure you appreciate those experience of of. So not only diversity and thought and experience, but all, all of it together, right? Then you're you're uh, you're around the table for the same reason. Well, I think that's what's so great about the World Cup, especially the the last one, Qatar. It was amazing to see patriotism, not nationalism. 
but also the world coming together and supporting, you know, I forget the countries now, there was um, Morocco, you know, one of the, the some of the smaller, oh. you know, and people are behind them, doesn't yeah. matter where they're from, yeah. come on, let's, you're the underdog, let's get you up there. So I love that game because it truly is a world sport. We have the World Series, you know, in baseball that I think just America's invited to, and then we have the Super, you know what I mean? So right. it's a true yeah. international game where, you know, you could be kicking around a ball in bare feet in the streets of Africa somewhere or South America and still ultimately compete against, you know, affluent nations and, you know, people of all colors and creeds. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. It's a be- it's, it is right. It, it's to that, you know, it is the beautiful game, right? It's called that for a reason, right? I, I believe that. And it's a fun, funny anecdote from this, this world cup final is a, for sure you, you know, the experiences and I'm sure you get ribbed about, I got ribbed about soccer my whole life. Right. Especially, you know, in the US and then, of course, in the fire service, even more so. Right. You work with with men that played division one football or men that played professional played in the NFL. And, you know, it's always that other sport. And um, so one of the gentlemen that really used to give me a hard time, very close friend of mine, um, going through a very difficult time in his life through um, adult child. uh, He and his spouse drift apart. um, And, you know, she's you know, so now they're going through their divorce. And um, I spent a lot of time with him and, and on the phone with him and talking through him and, and once on one call and, um, you know, he was telling me like how much he appreciated my help, this, that, and the other. And he asked me what he could do for me. And it was funny. It, it was, I said, you're going to come to the world cup final with me. We're going to go, we're going to go to the bar and you're going to watch it's at eight in the morning because of the time change here in Denver. I said, you're going to be there at seven 45. You're going to sit and you're going to watch that with me. And you're going to have this experience in a bar with people. And he, uh, one of the funnest times he said he ever had in his life because of the community at the event. And so, um, sort of a full circle thing for me in that moment too. Right. And uh, I got a ton of enjoyment just out of being with him and watching him have that experience. So. I watched it on a cruise ship. I happened to be on a cruise in the Caribbean. And so there was okay. a lot of, you know, people from, I don't know if they're all Argentinian, but a lot of people identifying as Argentinian that day. Yeah, right. But right. so we watched the first half in a bar. And, you know, when, when Argentina scored it, everyone just lost their minds. And then the second half, I'm like, why don't we just go outside and watch it on the, the pool deck? So then we sat at the very back and it was the same thing. You're in the middle of Atlantic on the ship and, you know, probably 50 plus percent of the passengers are up on the deck just cheering so it was yeah absolutely phenomenal to watch yeah no it's it's fun yeah no it's a great great fun so and i I, i'll share this because again because of my passion for it and my best friend since we were 13 he i I played a you know it's an old right old you don't have sweepers anymore but i was a sweeper and uh, my best friend was our was our was my keeper um from 13 on to, to, to today. Um, he's an anesthesiologist today, but right before COVID in January of 20, we went to, we went to London. Um, and we, we went, I, I, I've always followed Tottenham since I was a kid. Uh, we used to get a newspaper called the world soccer news here in the U S black and white newspaper. And for some reason that white Tottenham uniform with the logo stuck out to me as a kid. And so I, that's, that's, you know, it's like, you just pick, you don't know why you pick something to follow, but that's why I did. And so we had a we had a great experience. We went to we went to see Fulham play. Um, we went to Crystal Palace. Um, we went to Tottenham, um, and then we went out to West Ham in the period of eight days. Um, it was a, a wonderful trip, right? Beautiful. Yeah. When I grew up, it was when all the violence was happening, so it kind of soured me to the game a little bit, and I never had a team, quote unquote. And I think that's the thing is like football here. Maybe when 
everyone else is doing it sometimes you kind of push against it so i did combat sports instead but um but when it comes to the national teams i you know the euro cup and the uh, world cup i'm you know i'm up there every single game watching it because that's uh that's a whole different community then uh, all right you, you, you have harry kane's your uh top goal scorer in history yes right i'm working yeah. on trying to get him on he's actually affiliated with a charity that i'm um helping with another project that i do um and uh yeah so i'm going to see if i can get harry on he seems like an incredible human being he does. And, you know, there's a little bit more behind him here in the U.S. because of his relationship with Tom Brady and his um, he's been interviewed a few times and he has interest in becoming a place kicker in the NFL when he retires from 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 football. So oh, really? He, so, so there's a little bit of activity and narrative around him here that's outside of what he's doing over there. Well, so, I better hurry up cool. before they're all trying to scramble to get him on their show. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then speaking of your career aspirations, I know you entered EMS initially. When you were in high school, was that the field you were dreaming of? Or was there something else? I, I had no idea what I wanted to do or what I wanted to be at all. I, I spent um, right after high school, I went to um, a college here in Denver called Metropolitan State University. I, was, I, I had picked up snowboarding when I was 15. And so between playing, um, you know, in the soccer league and then snowboarding, I really became attracted to snowboarding to the point where I thought maybe I could make something out of snowboarding. And so I started snowboarding during the day and taking night classes, um, still living at home. I was the last one to leave my house, still living at home with my mom. And so I drive up to the mountains three or four days a week and snowboard. And I, I truthfully, I did that for almost two years. Um, and taking night classes. And finally I came home. I don't, my, I came home one, one Saturday or Sunday afternoon and my mother handed me a, a class application for EMT school at a hospital um, at, at Lutheran hospital here in Colorado. And she said, I think you should do this because it's time for you to basically get your act together. And so I took my mother's advice. I took that class and no, I really truthfully had no, I had no awareness what that field was. Um, no awareness what it would lead to. Um, but I think what I learned quickly, I got, um, went to EMT school. I got hired at a private ambulance company called Reed Ambulance. It was like, a, you know, back then that environment, lots of small private ambulance companies all around the U.S., mom and pop type businesses. And what I, I think what I was attracted to right away was that sense of community, right? Like that, t- you know, the same, the same reason why I think I like soccer so much. It was team and it was, um, same mission, you know, really mostly you're working with men and women that have similar values and goals and you're working towards a, you know, an end goal. And, um, no, and that's, I think that's what really attracted, attracted me. And I think I had a couple of those, you know, I think we all do, we all have those. So I'm 21 when I do that, when I get my first job, just turned 21. And I, I quickly said, well, if, if I'm an EMT, I should become a paramedic. So I went to paramedic school at 22. Um, and, uh, and then here in the Denver metropolitan region, if you're thinking just about that single resource of being a paramedic, Denver, the Denver paramedics was always attractive to be a DG paramedic was sort of the pinnacle in the area. And so I pursued that. And, um, I, I found that I had the, the appetite for, um, what we see and do, you know, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't derail me. I, I think I had the ability to always rationalize what I, what I saw and did most, you know, most of the time. And, but really what, 
what, what I loved was the camaraderie um, and the men and women that I worked with. And that's truthfully what led me, you know, all the way to South Metro Fire was um, men that preceded me. So men that had a similar path. They worked at Reed Ambulance. They worked at Denver General. They came to South Metro Fire and they said, hey, you should come to South Metro Fire with us. And I followed those folks because of how how tight I was with them and how highly respected they were in my, in my, in my view. So, so yeah. So it's always funny when I'm not one of those kids that saw a fire truck and ran down the street or had a helmet or that wasn't my path to this field at all. So with the uh, Denver general um, dynamic, were you working as the 911 ambulance in response with the fire side or what, what, what was your role there? Correct. So Denver paramedics is a third third service. So fire, police, and paramedics are separate entities, all, all publicly employed, but yeah, separate. So Denver Fire, I don't know if they do today, but it's never had paramedics or ambulances. And so we provided that service for all of the city and county of Denver. So tragically, I know you were a part of the response to Columbine. So prior to that, what, if any, was there, excuse me, let me say that again. Was there, if any, preparation discussion training or anything that would anticipate what would we really view as the very first mass shooting that we had in modern time not not here um we denver has uh still does but had we have gang activity we had shootings i had been on a a shooting on cinco de mayo near mile high stadium where six people were shot like that's the first you know so those ideas of having multiple casualties at one call was certainly not foreign to us. And certainly we were always, I think we were all, we always felt like we were well prepared for those kind of events, ingress, egress, how we manage the scene. And, um, but for sure, other than a one, you know, than a one, you know, a teenager shot or, a, a, you know, those other sing, you know, sentinel singular events for sure. Never, never thought that you would, you would, um, respond to something like Columbine High School. So if you wouldn't mind, kind of lead me through the day through your eyes. Yeah, so I, at that time I worked a, so it, in, in the Denver paramedics, we worked 10 hour shifts. We were four tens and we had, you know, the shift started as early as five 30 in the morning, the day shifts and through, through 11 in the morning. And then that, the afternoon ones picked up from one 30 PM through the night. And so that, that particular day I was working in ambulance that started at 11. So I had just, we had just come on duty. We drove to our first post post location and in, in Denver, the driver, you always had your channel, your radio channel on the police channel, whatever police district you were driving through, you changed your channel so you could hear the police activity while the attendant always had the, the their radio on the ambulance channel. And when we parked at that post, I switched my channel to police district four, which is where we were going. And um, I honestly, what I thought I was hearing was a training uh, ton of activity. You, you know, you, and we, we know those sounds, right. Chaos, a lot, a ton of activity, a ton of language around uh, victims and shooting. And um, I really thought it was a training. And then, and then, um, we were told on that channel, they, they moved all the radio traffic to their backup channel. So the regular district channel got moved. And at, and at that exact same time, a dispatcher called us. We had hard-mounted cell phones at the time. And a dispatcher called us on that cell phone and told us to respond to Columbine High School on the phone, not over the air, um, and said there was an active shooting there. And so we still had no idea what was going on. 
Um, so we just started responding there. In fact, we got on the highway, followed a Colorado State Patrol officer, and um, it was a, it was a weird circumstances that day. Um, the 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 dispatcher at the time was also one of our paramedics, so he worked one day a week up in the dispatch center, and so I knew him I knew him really well. And so he canceled us over the radio. He said, "Hey, number eleven, cancel your response." And then the phone rang right away, and he said, "Don't cancel, keep going." So it was a, you know, with those experiences, you're well. What do I do in this moment? We responded like we like anyways, and 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 by by then we started. We really recognized what was going on. We were hearing the ambulances leaving Columbine High School, transporting with 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 victims at that time. Um, that tra- the other radio traffic started to pick up around setting up triage and um, and, and all of those staging areas. And when we first arrived, um, and I, I don't know if you. We had a reputation as Denver paramedics of being a bit cowboy um, and cavalier. And I for surely, I certainly embraced that um, at that time. And when we pulled up, they had me, they had us park across the street from the school and apartment complex in a roundabout space. Um, and there, when we were pulling in with a bunch of private, private ambulances, but at the very front of the, 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 the row of ambulances in the staging for transport, there were two Denver paramedic ambulances at the very front. And I knew one of the gentlemen that was up there. And um, I decided that that's where I was going to go because that's, that's what I would been trained to do. And that's what, that's what we did well. And so I did, I drove, I drove past the police officer said, no, I'm going up to park up there, which is what I did. Um, and then we, we spent. So at that point, I think maybe the last victim was, was leaving the scene. The last known victim at the time was leaving the scene. And I spent the next because we had it, you know, we didn't have cell phones. We had the hard mounted ambulance phones. I spent the next until almost a little bit before three in the afternoon. We just triaged kids as the SWAT teams removed them from the school. So as they would just bring, you know, kids in groups of tens and twenties to us, we'd lift their shirts. We'd look for injuries between the four or five ambulances there at the front. We'd let them in the back. We told them they'd have 10 or 15 seconds to call their parents. And then we'd, they'd go further down, get on a bus, and they went to an elementary school to be reunited with their parents. So like I said, I did that for two or three hours. And then right around three o'clock in the afternoon, they they grabbed the first five ambulances. Um, they paired us up with a police officer. We drove around behind the school across the baseball field so we could come up and we could see the, the north man door to the library. Um, and then what was happening concurrently, one of my coworkers, um, Troy Lehman, this, this is how unprepared we were and not, not training, right? He, uh, a Jefferson County Sheriff's SWAT officer recognizes him from college and says, Hey, Troy, come with us. So the paramedic that goes in with the SWAT team at Columbine high school goes in because they're college friends, not because we train together. So, but because of that, we listened to Troy on the radio. And so we knew what they, he was, he was really active on the radio, letting us know what he was encountering. And he came across um, Dave Saunders, who was a teacher that had been shot in the library or, or sorry, in the hallway in the school. And, you know, we're looking at three, three, three fifteen in the afternoon. And Dave Saunders was agonal at three, three fifteen in the afternoon. So we know what that means. Right. So we know that he um, he had he had injuries that he could have survived. Um, so so we're hearing that. And it was sort of heartbreaking to hear Troy in that moment because Troy is asking for. Uh, you know, an ambulance crew to come in with a scoop stretcher and, and get him out. But the, our, the, his partner, Rob Montoya was in the command center managing the radio and Rob saying, Hey, Troy, this is a, 
this is an MCI and this is triage and you have, because you have to leave him there. So I just remember that's what I'm hearing as we drive around the ball field. And so we don't hear from him again. And the next thing that we see as we, as we staged outside the library door is the door swings open and they, they tell us all to come in. So we leave prams behind, we go in in our groups and our pairs. Um, and there was one victim still alive in the library. So she, um, and she had been, I think a lot of people know that story and she had been pretending to be dead. And so everybody runs to her. Um, but what I'm taught, you know, you're taught how to manage those calls. And so my partner, um, a gentleman named Todd Bernie and I, um, we walked the library and we checked for signs of life of all the, all the kids that were in the library. So that's, that was, that's all I did at Columbine. Um, and I, I, what I've shared with folks about how that experience affected me, it wasn't, it's just like, I think we all appreciate that when we've done these things for a living is that isn't what, that isn't what stuck with me now for sure. I've never seen anything like that before. Right. I didn't. Um, and so that was a, it was odd. And I remember a friend of mine, when we came back to the the triage area saying, I, I, I seemed a little bit off, like distant. Um, I didn't feel that. Um, but they made us, they made us, they made us go to a debriefing from there. So about an hour later, we left the triage area they sent us to do a formal debriefing. Um, and at that debriefing, they let anyone that was anyone be there. So I see about 10 of my peers that responded to Columbine, some guys that I didn't hadn't seen but had transported victims off. But then they let emergency room staff, um, other folks from the hospital system, and then this group that ran that debriefing were people I didn't know at all. Um, and I just started to tell the story just like I did with you. They, you know, they went around the room and, um, this, I just remember this, this woman started crying and it actually upset me. It made me mad. You, what do you, you know, you know, in those moments you're like, what are you crying about? Like you weren't there. You don't. And I left. So two things happened to me that that's right. That's where I'll share what, what, how Columbine affected me and changed how I looked at how we care for each other is I left. I went home. I went straight home. Um, I was single at the time. Um, my, I, I, I lived it. I was roommates with another paramedic who she was pursuing her sailing captain license in the Caribbean. So I had no one at home with me. I, you know, I was dating that, you know, my girlfriend came over at about 10 o'clock that night, but what I did was watch the news. Um, and what, what I didn't know happened is all my peers, they walked down to the creek and they shared a few beers and they talked about what they did. I didn't have that opportunity to diffuse and talk through it with my peers um, because of how that debriefing went. And I watched the news and what hit me, what was the hardest for me was there was a young, a young black boy killed in that school in the, in the library, Isaiah Scholes. Um, well, he was the only black victim. Well, I touched him in that library. So I know, I knew he was deceased and watching the news, his father was a, was a preacher in the, in the Denver area. He was at that elementary school, Leewood elementary school on the news as late 11 o'clock at night, knowing his son's alive, waiting to be united with his son. And I can just remember um, really yelling at the TV and saying, would someone tell him that his son is dead? Because I, you know, cause I know that I know what happened. And so it was disruptive for me for maybe the next couple of weeks, but nothing, I didn't, I didn't drink myself sick. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't, um, I didn't have suicidality. I didn't have any of those experience, but I could never really reconcile, um, how, uh, I guess how I wasn't taken care of and how I didn't have those opportunities to, 
um, commiserate with my peers and diffuse. And that's, that's just an example of why, like what's led me to coordinating peer support and my role as a health and wellness director and um, why I, why I care so deeply about what we do and how we take care of each other is I never wanted anyone to have a similar experience like I did. Now, when we think of that incident, and again, it's easy to Monday morning quarterback, especially when it was the very first incident of that magnitude of that, you know, horror that, that we'd seen in American history for a long, long time. But there is that discussion, as you talked about with the teacher, of the extended staging period, which sadly we just saw recently in Ivaldi again. Um, right. What from the ground, you know, from literally your own peers and your interaction with the department at the time, what was the... the uh, after action discussion like days and weeks after before it you know got analyzed for decades after that yeah for sure there was a bunch of disruption and um and then just like what you would expect there was conflict between the different agencies right the you know littleton fire department was the first responding agency because of the location of columbine high school it was still close to the boundaries of the city in denver and so those first those police officers you saw in civilian clothes that actually exchanged gunfire um, with those assailants were off-duty Denver police officers whose kids attended the school. And so there, we had all these conversations going on around. Um, so there was a lot of drama, I guess the best way to say it about. And so then there was a lot of exclusion in any sort of organized after-action activity. So the, the sheriff's department and the, the first responding fire departments really led the, that work. And so organizations like mine, um, Denver, Denver, you know, sorry, sorry, Denver paramedics and Denver fire and Denver police were, we were sort of pushed away out of those formal, thoughtful stuff. And so we were really, so I think it was sort of like a double hit for us is, well, Hey, we went and we transported and Hey, we went down there and did this work, but we were really excluded from, from that, that work of, of really evaluating what happened. So there was a lot of, um, like I said, there was a lot of animosity between some of those agencies and I, and I for sure experienced some of that. Now, what about the relationship prior? I had um, several guests on that were at the Pulse incident, which was on my doorstep here in Orlando. I've had um, a, a, some incredible interviews around the Parkland incident, including a firefighter friend of mine and his daughter was in the school when he responded. Um, and one of the things that I've seen in four departments is you, the good departments have good working relationships with PD, their own PD, the neighboring city or county. And what's people I don't in the public don't understand is that when there is poor leadership and egos in some of those positions, there's no communication. And then when something like this happens where everyone's got to work together and they've never even talked, no matter trained, that's where you see problems. Were there any elements of that prior to this incident happening in Columbine? Yeah, I would say so. I think that um, we, so the Denver paramedics had some adversarial relationships with some of those suburban fire departments. Absolutely. So yeah, just like you said, ego and um, th that sort of thing. We had a Denver paramedics and the Denver police department were incredibly tight. Um, um, so super healthy, tight relationship there. Um, but yeah, for sure. Strain. And, and, and then those, you know, like, let's say the Jefferson County Sheriff's Department, we had no relationship with, right? There was no reason to have a relationship with. We weren't, we didn't, we didn't work together that way. Um, and just like you, just like, you know, like what, what evolved a little bit in Denver was Denver created a CONTOMS team. So an unarmed EMS that, that paired with Denver SWAT, that was, that was sort of an outcome of Columbine. And so, um, 
but again, I think it was it was a thoughtful approach at trying to address those things. But it was still um, it wasn't it wasn't the right solution. We started to train together. We started, you know, like everybody did. We started to have regional trainings. The ICS system became mandatory. Everybody started to learn that language. You understood what a unified command finally meant. You know, he had PD on this side, fire on this side. And so we finally, um, we all embrace and start to train that way. Um, and then, and then I think like where I work today at South Metro, um, had a little bit more mature approach about integrating paramedics, um, with law enforcement. And so we have a SWAT medic program today. And so our two large sheriff departments that we, that we serve with, um, we have embedded SWAT paramedics on those teams that are armed. And I spent, I, I can't remember the exact years, but I spent, I spent about three years, 2006 through 2009 on the Arapahoe County Sheriff's SWAT team as an armed paramedic because of, again, those experiences and wanting to, um, to do better, right? Well, that program is an is a interesting area of discussion as well. There are SWAT medic programs out there where, as you said, the medics are armed. They're not first through the door, of course, but they're acting more like a Marine corpsman. They're not going in with nothing. Um, then you have, you know, the SWAT medic program where you're really just tagging on at the end. You're unarmed. And then you have what I was experienced most of the time in Orange County here in, in Orlando, where there wasn't a SWAT medic program. We were just toned out. We'd be right behind the Bearcat and stay up the street. You know, now you're completely unprepared with no equipment. And then God forbid, if the shit hits the fan, you just hopefully run in and, <laughs> you know, right. are able to affect. Right. So there's a, there's a right. large spectrum. Personally, yeah. I'm, I'm a fan of if you're going to go into a fire, I want SCBA mask, you know, tools. I want everything. So if I'm going to be a right. SWAT medic, I want to at least have something to protect myself with. God forbid this person makes it through these tiers of, of protection ahead of me. So what, you know, what was, where were you on that as far as when you served? And then what's your philosophy on that concept? I believe that they should be embedded in the team. I, I think that you should be armed to protect yourself, to protect your team. I, I you know, our, our members today, I, it wasn't during my time, but today they go through the full post certification course. They come offline, they go through that entire law enforcement course. My, during my time, we just went through the post firearms class and then SWAT academies and, and other, and, you know, and then like all the, um, you know, all the casualty combat care courses and all the other courses that are available. But where I go is I think what there's a, there's a philosophical challenge in leadership of why you're there. Right. And so we can always appreciate the victim in the house. Right. But what we, I think where, where leadership struggles is that philosophical debate of, well, who's responsible for that first police officer through the door. So sometimes fire leadership will say, well, that's the police department's responsibility. They should be paying for the, this part of it. Right. So we get lost in some of that minutia, but what you know to be true is which I, what I know to be true is if I'm, a block down the street and that officer is shot in his neck and I can't apply direct pressure and I can't control his airway in the moment that that happens, his outcome is going to be poor. We know that if I can't, those things, we know, combat, you know, if I can't intubate them, control their bleeding, decompress their chest, when it happens, that officer most likely won't survive. And so philosophically, I, that's what I believe in. I think that's the right thing. And so somehow all of these leadership entities need to wrap their head around that, that that's, that's the other reason why, why we're there. We're not just there for the victim in the house. We're there for that officer in front of us or behind us. And um, that's, it's, I think that, you know, we always talk about it and maybe you, you feel similarly is 
you know, once we mature to leadership roles, we start to answer some of these questions that we haven't been able because we've we've had the firsthand experience of doing it where, you know, you know, I can look up and let's say, you know, 10 years ago, my fire chief never my wasn't a paramedic was a, um, he, he had previously been uh, in the fire marshal's office. So not even responding the way we did, but, you know, but he's making those leadership decisions. So, you know, I think that once you, you hope that as we mature and our leadership men and women of our generation get to those roles, we start to answer some of these, these philosophical challenges that I think we have today. It's a, it's a very dangerous environment. My, I would argue my, my best department as far as just the number of people, the high bar that was in probation um, and training out west, Anaheim, um, they, you know, everyone that was all the way up the chain had been a firefighter and or a paramedic, at least a firefighter EMT, but they'd all been in most of the positions. The last place I was at, the fire chief chief had come up through fire prevention, so, you know, checking sprinklers and extinguishers and the operations chief was a dispatcher so you think about how dangerous that is with those egos that have never ever done the job and you're trying as a proactive passionate firefighter and or paramedic to say look these are some areas where we're people are going to get hurt or die if we don't address these and and you're told just shut up you know you know you're just a firefighter go go back to where you came from so having worked under some great leadership in the past I mean, I ended up transitioning out because of that fire department, ultimately to carry on doing this. But it was like five years of banging my head against a brick wall. And this this department protects one of the biggest target hazards on planet Earth, this theme park, a series of theme parks. So when it happens, it's going to be huge. And the after action is going to basically gut this entire department if you don't address this first. So just to kind of tack on to your point... No one should really be, in my opinion, in a fire leadership or police leadership role without at least spending a decent amount of time actually doing the job. Yeah, I think that's that's solid. I think it's rare um, that that um, that that someone possesses that ability to have not been in the seat and have a, and have that awareness and recognition of what's required. For sure, I, I agree with that a hundred percent. And I think we're we're blessed today to have a, a leader that um, who who comes from a the same space, but also um, what I really appreciate is the ability to task, right. Um, and promote leading from, from, you know, leading up. And um, it's created a pretty, it's, for me, it's created a wonderful environment, which is truthfully why we have, you know, the, the programs that we have in place here at South Metro. Well, let's talk about that then. So you're a veteran paramedic, 10 years, you transition into the fire service. Talk to me about, you know, what made you suddenly pull the trigger after not dreaming of being a fireman when you were younger? And then what was your on-ramp experience in South Metro? Yeah, I love, I mean, um, really from the moment, you know, an academy is an academy, right? We all have those experiences. But what, again, what um, I was uncertain, right? I was, like I said, I was recruited from men that, that came here first ahead of me and said, oh, you, you have to come here. And, but they also were like from really sound reasons, you know, like, hey, they, they, they pay for our continuing education. They, they pay us a bit more of paramedics. They respect what we do. They're trying to put two paramedics on every ambulance. And so there's that draw, you know, there's, and then, and then there's the curiosity of, um, can I, can I, can I go in a fire? Can I wear an SCBA? Can I climb a hundred foot aerial? Can I, do I have the physical ability to do those things? And so there was that, that, that curiosity and 
you know, that, that desire to test yourself a bit. Um, and knowing that, you know, like how I felt, I was very confident. Um, I was very confident as a paramedic in my skill set and, and what, you know, um, in my clinical practice. And so, yeah, it was, it was super exciting. And then I, like, I, like what I really found right away, my fire Academy was a collaborative Academy at the time. So we had four jurisdictions that at the same training center, the same Academy at the same time. So you had recruit training officers from those various, those various departments, um, but quickly assimilated, right. And became a really a cohesive team for sure. You know, you have one or two outliers in that Academy, but we really came together. And so I was all in from the Academy point forward. Um, when, you know, knowing that I could do the things that were asked of me and that I enjoyed them. Um, but then also uh, the, just the, the camaraderie, just, I think we all have those experiences where there's, there's men and women in our academies that um, become some of our best friends. Um, those same kind of friendships, like I have with my friend, Mike from 13 that, um, you know, I run into an academy, you know, those are, that's 21 years ago. And I run into an academy mate and it feels like yesterday, right? Like there's been no time lost between us. And again, that, 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 that community that we've created and um, is really what, why I knew I made the right choice. When you look back now with the physical fitness standards and then the PT culture, once you got in the profession, what did it look like at the beginning of your career? It was, we were a bit, we had a, we had probably had two, two cultures going at the same time as what I noticed from my perspective as a new firefighter is we had, we had a group that, believed in fitness um, and were working at it, but they were really, they were sort of working alone independently, right? They, there wasn't a ton at that time of department support. There wasn't policy for sure. There was funding for, you know, cable machines and um, you know, whatever I'm trying to think there was a program of, if you're familiar with it called flame that came out of Portland, that came out of a physician, Portland fire reach out to this physician and he created, I don't know what the acronym stands for, but that was happening at the station at the time. And, and it was really promoting a healthy, healthy diet, but around a lifestyle change diet. And I can remember there were these foam apples and oranges and bananas in the station that were just used as projectiles, right? Nobody was taking it seriously. And then the other spectrum of, um, w- which I think we all combat is um, there, I think that old mentality of you come out of the academy, you get your badge and you take your oath and you're good for 25 years. And so we, some of that, and, and I got sucked into the, the culture at that time a little bit. We, the, you know, when we're not busy, what do we do? Right. We, Hey, can you eat the 20, the 20, the 20 stack of pancakes for, for $10 in in a minute? Well, we do those, right. We were doing those kind of things when I was new and, um, and you want to, you want to be a part of the team. You don't want to be the, the person that says no, or doesn't participate. So, um, but I, I would say that we, the timing for us, well, sorry, for my entry to the department was we had those two things running parallel with each other, those two cultures, right when I think the zone diet started to become popular and CrossFit was emerging. And so um, my station in particular, um, I had been at that station for two or three years. Uh, we embraced those are the two things we embraced right away. Just as this is our small team, we embraced the zone diet and CrossFit, and we were all, you know, we were all losing body fat and, you know, getting strong and um, 
and we did that. I think we did that for a few years, truthfully, as a as a as a team at that, at that station. And for sure, that then that's what sort of saturated our organization for a while was that approach. So, but still, no policy, no. Um, and then what was running at the concurrently was an occupational medicine program that was uh, not supervised vendor relationships, checking the box. Hey, we need the, this is what we need done. And so really a big gap between the intimacy of having a program. And then over here you have this, you know, this, you know, independent fitness track and then people in the middle that don't want to do anything. And, um, yeah, so I, I don't, I'm sure you had that. I don't know where I don't know where your experience is is with that, but very similar actually. There was never any real organized um, PT. I mean, it was very much the as you said. Yeah, there were the guys that worked out and the guys that didn't, male and female. Um, and uh, for me, I got exposed to CrossFit in I think it was oh oh six oh seven, and that was mind blowing. You know, it really was. And I've been doing it ever since. I still coach now and still do it. But I, I've added strongman style training as well as, as a supplement to it some other things but i was blown away having been an athlete my whole life how well that did transfer to the fire ground do you remember any kind of like aha moments where you saw that specific addition of that style of training you know represented in in gear i i think what i yeah what i i think a lot of the takeaways for me was a good example let's say a turkish getup right like who who learns that as a young man playing playing sports or in in a uh, you know high school or collegiate environment but what that but how how many times in a real real life situation on a call have you been in a in a position where you can't really you don't have leverage right or moving patients i always talk about patients i think that that's one of the most difficult things we do is moving people in and out of their homes right and um and evacuating people from vehicles and we're always in awkward uncomfortable positions right and i think that's one of the things that where i felt like I embraced CrossFit to a certain extent was CrossFit did a lot of that for us, right? It put us in some of these positions where, you know, if you're an Olympic weightlifter, you're never going to be, you know, not, you're never not going to have your stable base. And in the real world, we know exactly that you're not going to have a stable base. You're going to have an une uneven floor, a wet roof, uh, you know, a narrow staircase, two stories, um, carrying somebody that only two of you can, can touch at the time because there's no space for four of you and we've we've done all those things right and that's where i think um that's where i think i really enjoyed and embraced crossfit was because of those experiences so then walk me through the journey that you took from there not being any structure as car as far as strength and conditioning on the on the physical side to where you are today so we had in in 2012 so our opera who's our fire chief today bob baker was our operations chief um in 2012 and he he was already trying to promote that that you know policies and standards you know gently you know like hey we want you to work out hey officers please you know commit two hours every day for your crew to work out you know but really never it never quite then that at that time never came to being mandatory the same time we're running a incumbent physical ability test. So an IPAT, which is, you know, that, you know, five or six stations, fire ground simulation that was timed. And then over here, we had that occupational medicine, like I described And 2012 sort of became a perfect storm for us. The first, a ton of dissatisfaction with occupational medicine. We were having to do these stress 12 lead tests that because I'm in the union, I'm completely aware of the circumstances. We had 
um, 14 members have false, false positives and had to go pay out of their own pocket for a stress echocardiogram. So these, 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 they, they were all men. All of these men had to go pay $750 for a stress echocardiogram out of their own pocket and they couldn't work until it was completed. So there's that question. Well, work wants me to do it. Shouldn't work pay for it. So that's happening at the same time. And then our iPad, we had, um, so we're running it and it wasn't, we weren't being thoughtful like we should have been. We were running that iPad a bit like an assembly line. You know, the battalion chiefs want to get everybody through. They'd like to get them through as many shifts as they can, or as, as few shifts as they can. The paramedics on the ambulances are not only doing the medical surveillance, they're also taking the test, you know? So I can remember that going down early, take my test, and then I'm doing the, you know, checking people in and out all day. And so in 2012, we had a 41-year-old firefighter go into cardiac arrest um, when he got back to the station after his iPad. And he was a uh, fit, um, CrossFit, um, healthy diet. He had a blood clot. He didn't have, you know, um, in his left coronary uh, descending artery. And then um, he he was resuscitated for two hours. So he was in, in and out of cardiac arrest for two hours. He was, what we know to be true is you, as a civilian, you don't go to the cath lab in cardiac arrest, but because he was a firefighter, he went to the cath lab in cardiac arrest and he survived and he's been back, back at work for, ever since, you know, he's been back at work for over 10 years. So we, that Sentinel event, we, the next day we had two other medical emergencies. We had a 50 year old Lieutenant who had a, who had an MI had to have a stent placed leap directly transported from the, the iPad. And then we had another hypertension crisis. And so those things all coming together at the same time were the momentum for us to take a step back and really talk about what we were doing. And so, so chief Baker, the, the three of us that were on the union's executive board um, discussed it and said, Hey, we want to please suspend this iPad um, until we can have a more thoughtful approach at medical surveillance and, and some standards and what, what is a, in this iPad safe or not, you know, cause we weren't, we weren't, we weren't worried about whether that, you know, in, in particular, this firefighter, we didn't, we did we, we didn't care if he ran calls the night before we didn't know if he ran a call on the way there. Um, we don't know if he slept it the night before. We didn't care about the ambient air temperature. We, we didn't. We weren't. We didn't make sure he was hydrated before he did the iPad. We were just trying to get it done, and it really no one's fault. We were all in it together, right? And but that's really what led us to this. And so, um, lots of conversations back and forth. We, um, our our human resources director uh, and one of my peers on the union, uh, a, a company officer, and a and a fire a firefighter who was really active in our peer fitness team. They went out west. They went to Phoenix. They went to Orange County, California. They visited different fire departments on the West Coast to just see what other folks were doing, and came back. and um, We sat down and started talking about it. And um, they, the Chief Baker, asked one of the three of us on the executive board to come offline and and build a wellness program. Um, and we all said no, because <laughs> who wants to come offline and and work in the office and this was 2013. This was right after the summer of 2013, after they had returned from their trip. And uh, I, I tore my ACL playing soccer. And so I, uh, I volunteered for that assignment. And that's, that's really how we got started in the first place it was just that Sentinel event and that really that collaboration between labor and management. So we talked the other day, obviously setting this up. And one of the observations that I've got to make because i've worked for multiple departments east coast and west coast is when there is okay now we're going to create a peer fitness um kind of philosophy or culture here 
when I, I come from a, a background as an athlete, as a coach, you know, very, very low level coach. I haven't done it in full time, but an understanding of what strength and conditioning coaching experience should look like. And then in the fire service, we have a tendency to send people away for a weekend, maybe five days, and then they come back as your expert, your guru in mental health and physical health. Talk to me about how you were able to start bringing in true experts in their field and add them as members of your team in your fire department. Yeah, so the very first hire, and and I will give him a ton of credit because it was his, um, not only his um, credential and his experience, but truly his vision too of what he saw when he when he, we came. And so I hired and I I didn't know who to hire. Right, I'm a I'm a firefighter paramedic. I don't know who to hire, and so I interviewed strength and conditioning coach, athletic trainers, exercise physiologists, um, physical therapists, and really like who's the right fit. I ended up um, interviewing 12 people, but this gentleman Vince Garcia was the first assistant at the Denver Broncos, the athletic uh, athletic trainer. And uh, from our first call, he really talked about like that role of. Um, medical surveillance of a population and, and how you resource it and how, and return to play. So right away, return to work for me. And, um, and then talking about how um, you have a weakness, you get injured, but how do we not only repair your injury, but how do we repair the weakness, right? How do we provide symmetry and strength, you know, all of those things at the same time. And so that, that was an easy that for me, that was, well, this, he knows what he's talking about and this is going to be the right fit. And what I learned quickly was he also brought his relationships with him. He brought orthopedic surgeons, you know, that were on the sideline that they gave us a, a path between the general population and that professional athlete to get into the OR and get in and get some of those, those things done. And at the same time, we had a peer fitness team that was primarily CrossFit. And so there for sure was some, um, there was conflict, right? Anytime. And, and I can remember the two of the guys that really led the, the effort and um, they still are uh, great, great peers and great leaders in, in that space. Um, I remember I was talking to both of them out at the training center one day of, cause we were talking about hiring that very first strength conditioning coach. Um, and I asked them, do you want, do you want this job? Like, do you, or do you want to stay in the firehouse? And they both would prefer to stay in the firehouse. Right. And um, but once once people started to see the proof and 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 how Vince took care of people, um, and then the the you know the first coach comes in and people start to see that that professionalism and that experience and you know when you, when you you know that is when you start to hire the right people that can assimilate into the fire culture, um, you, you just start to see this thing flourish and grow a bit. Um, and unfortunately, Vince, uh, unfortunately for Vince, unfortunately for us. Uh, the Denver Broncos hired Vince back when their head athletic trainer retired. Um, and so he's been back there um, for the past few years. Um, but that really is what, what set us, set us up for this success. And so where we had small wins, we were able to capitalize. So for instance, when you look at the nuts and bolts of the, the, the finance side of it, right. You know, traditional occupational medicine space in a traditional employer if you you hurt your knee, they want you to go do physical therapy first, six to eight weeks before you get an MRI. Well, we embrace that the opposite, right? More of that sports medicine approach, which was let's get the MRI first. Let's know what's wrong first. And what that's allowed us to do is was, was attack lost time at the front of the injury. So, you know, we know 
tissue heals and bone heals only as quickly as it can. But if you get that diagnosis, that rapid treatment, then we've reduced lost time at the front end of the injury instead of the right. And so that was a win financially, which then propels us to hiring more staff, right? So as we can start to prove some of that worth, um, we really led us into the space where we are today, which is, I think I shared this with you before, we have three full-time strength conditioning coaches. They all came from the uh, collegiate or um, so one had spent some time at the U S Olympics with karate um, and Taekwondo. Um, but they all come from the collegiate space, division one, football, soccer, lacrosse, women's basketball. So they have a myriad of experience. Um, our athletic trainers, we have four full-time athletic trainers, again, from, um, from the NFL, from collegiate basketball, football, um, U S figure skating. Um, so really great experience again, there, um, We've hired a full-time physician recently. So she, another a unicorn for us. She was a fire EMS medical director in in, in um, Flagstaff, Arizona for, for some time and moved to Colorado and had started to dabble in the occupational medicine space. And we stumbled on her through another relationship and we brought her in. And so she understands our culture so well, being a, you know, being a medical director and now she cares for, now she cares for us. And then we have a couple of ancillary positions. Um, the wellness navigator. So when one of our members is injured, that employee takes them from A to Z through all of the internal processes, right? Onboards them, walks them through it. Um, you know, and then and then under that same umbrella, basically, so those things I shared before, my experience from Columbine, you know, in about 2010, I started coordinating our peer support team. And in 2012, HR let us take over our EAP program. So they let us pick who our clinical psychologists were. Um, so we were immediately able to vet culturally competent trauma-trained clinicians. We expanded from that one clinic where you might go to get care and there's 40 police officer candidates. They're taking their psych- psychological tests while you're there in crisis. So we were able to expand that network to six different practices. Our members have access to about 35 different clinicians. Um, we just, like I said, it just, and it's all through these conversations, James, and and navigating and looking over the fence and seeing what other folks are doing. We learned about EMDR and we told all of our EAP providers, you have to have a provider that does EMDR or we won't do business with you. We we found neurofeedback in 2018 and brought that clinician into our headquarters building in 2020 and have been running a neurofeedback clinic out of, out of our headquarters since then. Um, so we just have an incredible, I'm blessed. I have a fire chief that... Um, that supports us in this effort and listens and lets us proof of concept and pilot study things. And when we prove it, um, he allows us to continue with it. And, and let me, let me back all the way down. Cause I know this is something we wanted to talk about. Why do we have what we have? Our skin in the game as the firefighters to have this robust wellness program and medical surveillance program. Um, at the end of the day, all said and done with the salaries and benefits and, program design and expense, we're talking about a $4 million a year program to serve 620 line firefighters. We have about 810 total employees. Our skin in the game as firefighters is having a fitness test. So we're back, we go back in 2012 and we parked that incumbent physical ability test. And even back then that was a punitive test. You had a time limit. Um, and if you, if you didn't pass, you had a year of rehab under that policy to pass and come back online. Today, we've, we use a VO2 max test. So on a, on a treadmill, 
with a, with a cardio coach. We are shooting, we convert that VO2 to METs because of the standards in, in NFPA 1582. And our goal is to get to that 12 MET standard, right? We know that's the average um, um, metabolic expense of the fire ground. And so um, that's, that's what Chief Baker has clearly articulated to us. I will continue to support this robust wellness program. Um, but my expectations are that you have a, you have a mandatory fitness test in, in, for that to happen. Well, firstly, I love everything that you guys are doing, and we'll get to the the mental health side in a second. But not only having the true experts of the world, and it's funny because I had a guest on recently who had recently become exposed to first responders, and he said, I know Division Three teams that get better strength, conditioning, nutrition than professional firefighters and law enforcement officers. And he goes, that, that's disgusting to me. So having figured that out um, in your department is phenomenal. And it's, this is why I'm so glad that we get to talk about this. This is never a show about bitching about the problems. It's like, hey, here's a glaring issue with a lot of fire departments, but look over here. You know, South Metro's doing it right. Look over there. You know, Norway's doing it right for this thing. There, we do not have to reinvent the wheel, but as we talked about cities and counties and police departments and fire departments not talking to each other, we're so siloed, we're so fragmented as a profession. And, you know, like you were on the union board, like I'll be very transparent. I was a union member my whole 14 years, never saw the work week get changed, never saw real um, strength and conditioning initiatives like we're talking about now. You know, the, the, the mental health model, one facility up in the top of the corner of this country, I don't think is a great solution either. So, you know, I'm just kind of pulling out everything from the shadows, showing, hey, this can be so much better and look over here. This department's figured it out. So I think it's phenomenal. Talk to me about the financial savings that you've projected saving, because this is the thing. For men and women in uniform that put their lives on the line for other people, I would argue that they understand the value of service and selflessness and, and you know the human component of what we do. By the time it gets to whether it's a chief level administrator, you know, even maybe some union members, they that seems to be lost. And so now they're like, well, I need to see the figures, which you shouldn't need to. This is the wellness of your people. But regarding, you know, take that out the the equation for a moment. When we talked before, one of the big things that I was talking to you about was the work week and how we work our men and women these crazy hours and we would save a huge amount of money if we added a fourth platoon and therefore more time, more rest and recovery, we wouldn't have as many workman's comp claims, injuries, etc. The same thing I get with the wellness. People that have initiative um, initiated a good wellness program there's a visible financial savings. So that's a great selling point for that chief to go to their county or city. So you've got a pretty longitudinal study now, 10 plus years of this. What what have you seen as far as the, the reduction in injury rates, the increase in performance, and then the fiscal savings? I, I think, so those concrete things like reducing lost time at the front side of an injury, right? That's, we, 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 I'm sure it's more than this today, but we talk about it costs us a thousand dollars a day of firefighter isn't at work in overtime, right? To backfill them. So right away, we've had some wonderful cases where well, not wonderful for the member, but injured on a Saturday or Sunday, they have their MRI on a Monday, they see the surgeon Monday or Tuesday, and then the OR on a Thursday, right? Those are really easy to articulate and show what that timeline looks like on the front end. And um, and then our we do the re- we do all physical rehab 
on site in our in our program. And so today I would tell you that with the exception of a unique double knee replacement or a cardiac rehab, everything 100% are happening in our in our training room at South Metro. And so and whether that's work related or non work related. So if a member tore their ACL scheme, so those are savings on the benefit plan too. So not only in the workers compensation side, but also the benefit plan. And so those are now we have a salary and benefits, right? So you always, if you're looking at the offset and where, one of the things I've always articulated, which I think it's lost sometimes is the value of embedded staff that buy into the culture, that, that believe in service, that believe in the mission, that believe that their role is keeping the men and women that serve safe is as valuable as those dollars. And so those dollars would be spent anyways and probably spent we would spend more dollars, right? And we'd have an increase in lost time. So I think it, it's always hard to have these conversations without really speaking to the value of having embedded staff um, that are committed to the mission as much as the men and women that serve on the, on the, on the you know, at the station level. Um, but, but, but let me back up a little bit. So when we talk about rehab specifically, in a traditional benefit plan design, if you tear your ACL, you get certified for 20 rehabilitation benefits in a, in a physical therapy clinic. And if you've done any rehab in those, those environments, you get 30 minutes with the clinician. So in an hour appointment, you usually go ride a bike for 10 minutes by yourself. You get 30 minutes with the clinician and then they, they have you do some self work while they start their next patient. And in our, our program, our men and women are getting two to three hours of physical therapy with our athletic training group, right? They're, and they're going from different modalities. They're, you know, they, we may have, we have a, one of our clinician does dry needling where one doesn't. And so that, that employee will bounce between the different clinicians in the clinic and they're getting that quality time and they're getting, you know, they're getting 60, 70 sessions, 80 sessions. They're coming in four days a week. Um, again, that's, that's, it's more care than they would get outside. Um, but it's, it's higher quality care. Right. And at the same time, things that we've done is, um, um, is that those set. So because it's on site, it's in our headquarters building. And so if it's in that workers' compensation environment, and even if it's a personal injury, when they're on a mod and they're in a modified duty position. So we, we have a modified duty project manager. So we have an employee that just manages modified duty. So they solicit the entity for programs and they pair firefighters and paramedics with that work. But what we've really what we've been able to do at South Metro is we've let everyone know that that injured firefighter or paramedic can only do about four hours of work out of an eight hour workday because the rest of that workday is in healing is in rehab is in, and the rehab could be going to EAP, right? It could be in neurofeedback. And so those are the other things that we do um, is you may have a, you may have tor torn a rotator cuff, but we're going to make sure that we introduce you to neurofeedback while you're in the building. And we're going to encourage you to do neurofeedback in addition to your physical rehab, in addition to those three or four hours a day, you might work in that modified duty position. Again, those are, there's no hard to equate dollars, right? With, with a lot of these things, but for sure it's value in quality and proof that, that the organization cares about our, you know, the, our priority, which is the, the men and women that serve. But what I will tell you is if you attached a, a rate to all of those visits, you know, we're, we're nearing $800,000 a year in, in physical therapy that we do in-house. Um, and then when we look at our workers' compensation, um, our, I think I shared this with you before, we're, we've grown over time. When, when all, of, all of these things happened in 
2012, we were about 298, 300 employees. Today, like I shared, we're 620 firefighters and 800 and about 810 total employees. Um, we don't pay any more for our workers' compensation insurance than we did in 2012. So it's exactly the same. Um, that's, I think that's proof. That's for sure proof in, in, in the value of what we're doing um, as well. So, but that's a, it's funny. And maybe if you appreciate this is, again, I'll speak to it. I'm a firefighter paramedic and I'm in it. I'm in, I'm in the role I'm in today because I truly care about the men and women that serve and, and want to make it better. And so I'm not a you know statistician. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that person. And we're, but we're, we're growing up and we're maturing and we're, we're, we're creating systems and processes and medical record keeping and, um, and all of those things that we're, we're going to be able to produce that thing much more um, maturely in the future, um, capture it, capture it better. But um, I think that, um, you know, it's also a, our, our chief Baker believes that um, in us being an employer of choice um, and that's, and this is proof, right? This is, you, you put this out there and we regularly heard this from our recruits. We haven't had any, any problem in recruiting and filling our academies. And we hear, you know, quite frequently that they're here because of our wellness program and, and how the organization cares about them. See, and that's so good to hear because I've talked about this with my experiences in these two diverse departments, the best and the worst, um, in my opinion, um, my experience. But the Anaheim, I mean, we have people lining. I, was, I tested against a thousand certified firefighter, EMT and or medics. Most of their resumes were ambulance operator, wildland fire. I mean, you know, volunteer all these kind of things and uh people flocked to that department because it was notorious for how hard it was to get hired and then notorious for their department their uh, probation 25 percent didn't make it every single time and i don't know if that's still there if the bar has slipped a little bit but when i was there that was clearly you know evident that yeah if you are a good department and you value your people and you keep that standard high you're going to attract people if you do this 18 and a heartbeat mentality that some people falsely think is going to help with staffing you become a revolving door department they'll get their certs and then they'll walk out the back so listening you know as i've heard so many people say they're in a hiring crisis now this is exactly what i'm talking about you are respected you know you you have these fitness standards you hold your people accountable and deaf and you are experiencing a great recruitment process still yeah absolutely yeah. When we, we last year, we, we did our first true lateral. I, there's always talk about doing laterals in, in our, right. We don't, um, we always think that I, I know this right? we, oh, my Academy is better than your Academy, James. You don't, you don't do it. You don't pull hose the way we pull hose, right. The, all of those, you don't know how to hit a hydro, we, all of that nonsense. Right. And we finally really had a lateral Academy just five weeks. It wasn't 16 weeks and we didn't, we didn't treat them like rookies. Right. And, and we treated them like adults. We treated them like adults in the academy. And, and, um, and what a home run. And all of them came because of our, because of our reputation and our program. That's why they came. They left their career departments in the, in the same region. And we're talking three and five year, you know, tenured employees that couldn't wait to get here. And though that is, and we're still hearing it from them, right? You know, a, a young woman that was down in the training room today who fell during the academy and injured her patellar tendon and just finally had that repaired. Um, and that's, she was again, reiterating, like, this is why she came. 
you know, she came from a neighboring department and she came for this and like how blessed she feels because she, she said it this morning, she said, if I was still there, I'd still be waiting for healthcare. I'd still be waiting for, for treatment. And it's, it's, it's awesome to hear, right? And that's why we're doing it. Well, tacking onto what you said about Chief Baker's stance as well, I couldn't agree more with a punitive fitness standard. If you look at so many other professions that we admire, whether it's ocean lifeguards or special operations, they have the same thing. You know, where it's performance driven, maybe it may not be a standardized test, but, you know, with, with the ocean lifeguards, it is, you know, and I was from the lifeguard community before, not ocean, but, you know, I had to recertify. If I couldn't swim and tow and do all these things, then I didn't get my piece of paper. And then you look at our profession and the irony is you talked about, you know, you come out of the academy and that's the best you're ever going to be in florida our academy is called minimum standards so they've labeled that that is the most shit version of yourself you should ever be in your career so yeah but it blew me away but there wasn't and i've heard had people say well you know you've truly got that culture right if you don't need it and absolutely as you said i was one of those ones that was in the weight room or you know running or whatever but that's not everyone especially not today so talk to me about you know the 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 because you told me this before the few 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 number of people that you've actually let go with that because i think there's this misunderstanding and sadly i think you know certain union members perpetuate this myth oh they're trying to take our jobs well if you look at a fitness standard you're asking two things i want my people to be able to do what they're paid to do and actually you know facilitate a rescue whether it's 20 floors up in a high rise whether it's you know down the hallway in a school and then also I want them to retire and have a, a long, healthy retirement. Those are, there's no downside to a fitness side unless you are just not willing to put in the work, in which case this is the wrong job for you anyway. So talk to me about, you know, outside all this fear mongering, what has been the, um, the attrition rate of holding that standard in your department? Yeah, with, with you know, with, with really with all integrity, I can tell you that we've had, we had two members retire um, because of the, because of the, the VO2 max test, um, in, in our, in our, in our population. And so we, we, again, I, was, I want to make sure that it's super clear that this is a, this was a collaboration with labor and management. You know, I was on the, the union's executive board when we, when we started this thing and we agreed to it and, but we ramped it up. We gave, we, we, two years before the rubber hit the road, we introduced the test, we took the test. So we understood it before, before we had to. And then as we merged with the other departments, we gave them that same grace period before the rubber hit the road. And um, with the way this policy is, re- it's meant to be rehabilitative, right? It's, it's so in that first pass, if you, if you, if you have to come offline because you can't meet the standard, um, you're placed in modified duty and you're, you're like I talked about before. Hey, if you tear your ACL, three or four hours is rehab. The rest is your workday. If you if you um, don't pass the VO2 test, the you're just doing you're doing physical rehab. You're working with the strength coaches. You're put on a program, and then we test you every thirty days to see right until you until you get to the the level we expect you to be at. Um, and so that's the first year. And so you get you get ninety days, and if you're showing thoughtful progress, you get extended another 90 days. So you can spend up to six months or longer into, into this program, in this program offline the, in the first instance. And then that second, that second year, if that happens, you get paid while you're there doing the rehab, while you're doing the physical program, but you have to, you don't longer get the modified duty opportunity. You have to burn your own sick or vacation time to make up your work week. Um, and then the third instance is where you, you would be vulnerable. 
right? Based on your, your circumstances and how close you were and still, but still not a hard line, right? But still want to give people the opportunity and, and, and you know, to, to move that needle. And what I will tell you is that the member, the first member to choose to retire, retired coming up on his third failure. Um, in fact, he didn't even take his third test, right? He, um, it was, it was transparent to the rest of us. Um, he, you know, he gained a lot of weight that year after, you know, after he returned the second time, um, it was clear that he wasn't going to, he wasn't going to take that test. So he self-selected, he made a decision, but I, I think I shared with you before, um, this is a 30 year employee. So this wasn't a, this wasn't a 40 year old, right. Or this was somebody who had, who had served a long time, um, that it that it put his time in and 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 made a thoughtful decision to not not take that that test. And then we had another member, um, the the other member that retired again retired before he took the second test. Had also been um, had to come offline twice at two training events, so wasn't able to complete the two training events. So uh, moving two and a half inside a commercial structure was had to take remove his equipment and be be treated and come offline for a while. So again somebody that thoughtfully chose, I'm not going to take this test again. So we've, we've, we've never hit that, that benchmark of that third year failure where chief Baker has had to make that firm decision, but we've laid the policy and foundation out that, and he continues to hold that, that line that way with that perspective. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's, it's so important that you've got that structure because like you said, if you've got 30 years, then that was simply there to, show you okay you know it it is time to pull the trigger on retirement and you're not able to because imagine if you were sent to respond to an incident and someone died and you knew damn well that they died because you couldn't you know climb those stairs you couldn't mask up or whatever it was at that point and i think this discussion is is misunderstood by a lot of people with this whole you're taking my jobs and 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 i want to give kudos to your union again there are great unions out there i just where I've worked, there's been a lot of self-serving unions that have opposed any sort of fitness standards, which I think is nauseating and shame on you. But um, people, you know, lives are at stake. So never are you going to, you know, never would anyone recommend introducing some sort of standard. And from day one, if you don't pass it, you're fired. There needs to be an on-ramp, you know, an, an escalation. But you've also got to hold people accountable because as you know, I one of the phrases that I like to use is how would you feel if your family died because the responder hadn't trained? We're not plumbers. We're not carpenters. We're not musicians. We're firefighters. And so we have a physical responsibility and no one can say it's not fair because in the fire academy, were you allowed to just skip out PT? Were you allowed to just walk, you know? halfway up the building no so you can't tell me oh it's not fair when the when you went through the fucking fire academy you knew exactly what the expectation was for your entire career so i'm so glad that you guys were able to really navigate this and put that bar back where it belongs because the 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 pussyfooting around this topic is nausea it's like the fat shaming thing yeah let's just keep letting people die of morbid obesity you know and half of their lifespan because we're afraid of hurt and feelings this is the fire service we ask that you can perform at a high level paramount to the tactical you know the the special operations and some of these elite you know tactical athletes that we're held to the same standard by them 
I agree that a lot of the environments that we work in set us up for failure. We don't have strength and conditioning coaches. Our work weeks are absolutely horrendous at the moment. So we need to fix those. But that ownership element has to exist. Our unions have to fight for, for these types of standards. They have to fight for the equipment. They have to fight for the, um, the instruction, like you said, the real experts to come in. And then we have to, you know, all embrace the fact that we should be held to the same, if not higher standard than when we were first in the academy. Cause I'm about to turn 50 next year. If I can still do that shit and I'm not even paid to do it anymore, then everyone in uniform should also be able to do that. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. And, um, you know, chief Baker takes the, he takes the VO2 test every year as well. In fact, um, members on the executive team, he's asked to take it that, that don't come from our, our space, right? To have the experience to appreciate what we're asking our men and women uh, online to do. And I think another thing that I, I think that's important to point out at, here at South Metro is that our program exists because that's our skin of the game is the test, but, but, but because we really believe in it, right? The other piece of it is the, is the reward. And the other, the other reward isn't just our, our robust wellness program, but it's also our firefighters are the highest paid firefighters in Colorado. They're paid at the hundredth percentile. And so, you know, you know, and, and so he's putting his money where his mouth is, the chief is, and our board of directors are, and they're, they're telling, we're going to reward you um, for this. We're paying, we're going to pay you for the risk and we're going to reward you for our higher expectations um, and give you this program. And like I share, like you, we've already talked about it is, well, I've watched that. That's why people are coming to work work with us and for us. It's because of all of those things together. Um, and a, it's a unique experience just happened. I think since between the last time you and I talked, is um, Chief was invited to speak on a conference call with um, United Arab Emirates, um, a sheikh from Abu Dhabi, who's looking. They looking at the U.S. to see and and specifically around wellness fitness initiative and um, what what we do to take care of firefighters and. Um, as you can expect, we were the only department on that conference call that's doing what we're doing. Um, and so he's really proud of that, you know, and I'm proud of these opportunities to to tell our story. And for sure, like, you know, I'm not so naive that I wouldn't tell Chief Baker that that I was going to be on this this call with you today and talk about these things. Right. And um, yeah, and he 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 wants us to to continue to tell that story. And and I think like I believe this just like we talked about as leadership evolves and matures. So as we work together and we get to those leadership positions, we mature and evolve and address um, issues that we had a hard time wrestling with before. I think this is going to be similar for us as a, as a field, as an entire occupation in the U.S. I believe that in a generation, we're not going to be talking about this anymore because it's going to be an expectation that that men and women are going to embrace that, 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 we 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 do sign up for the risk and we do but we're also willing to put to put in the work to to do that and you know there's always this conversation of what you know we know we know that we're because of wearing bunker gear and going in a heated environment we know that we're at a higher we 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 risk these hypercoagulative states right we risk having a blood clot but the risk is more so in having an underlying cardiovascular disease right and having metabolic syndrome having high cholesterol and so that's the other piece I think that gets lost a little bit in a fitness standard is the fitness standards is moving us towards good health. It's not just, can you do this today? It's this lifelong career progress of staying in a healthy space and, and preventing the disease that you can prevent so that you are equipped 
to, to do the job when you're called on to do it. But also, like you said, you said it, and what Chief Baker likes to say here is the round trip ticket, right? He wants everyone to have a round trip ticket and he wants you to, to come in and do the job and go home. And he means that all the way to retirement. Like I want to see, I want to, you, we all want to see people financially secure, mentally fit and physically fit when they leave, when they leave the, the organization to go and enjoy the risk that they absorb that whether that in the exposure to trauma, the exposure to chemicals, the exposure to all of it, you want people to leave healthy and happy and look back on it on a, a life well served, right? That's, that's also, I think that gets lost in a little bit of why that standards there too, is because that's what we want to drive to. Yeah, well, I think it's amazing. I know we touched on this when we spoke, and I'd just love to kind of open Pandora's box on this for a moment. For six and a half years now, the length of this podcast, I've been questioning our work weeks, of which that I was a part of for 14 years. Most of my career was a 56-hour week, 24-48. Then you have all the mandatories that I experienced in both of those departments, you know, so much. Um, and uh, that that was really one of the reasons why I transitioned to my last one was I was a single father and I couldn't have anyone say, you can't go home today because there was a small child waiting for me. Um, but when we talk about all these tools and you speak to the the sporting world and you speak to the the um, the wellness gurus that work with you know tier one operations, the absolute foundation of that is sleep. And if you're not getting sleep, then you're not repairing from great strength and conditioning. You're not you know your brain isn't processing the trauma that you saw in Columbine or Rivaldi. So talk to me about what you guys are working now and then which is the kind of uh, the work week that you would hopefully add to this incredible toolbox that you've always got already got of longevity for your people yeah, i think if i had the um you know, if i had the the my hands on the purse string of the taxpayer i we'd go to a fourth we'd go to a fourth shift right overnight that's a that's like 2472 right that's that's easy um and then you when you and then you know as well as i do when you sprinkle in vacation on that schedule you can really reduce that work week to 40 let's say 42 hours i think that's that's probably where everybody wants to wants to get we're we're a 56 hour work week we've we've been able we work a 4896 but we've been able to um, we started to talk about shift schedule change. We looked at the, a, a similar Seattle model where you could slowly add in more till you finally get that full four shift. Um, but we did, we were able to sprinkle in more vacation. So, what, but it's that 48 hour block of time. That's, that's super concerning, right. And how we, how we break that up and what, what I know to be true. And I was similar. Um, we, we really love our four days off. Right. And I appreciated them too. You know, you, you can go, you can go take a mini vacation. You can go camp, you can go fish, you can take care of what you need to at home. And, but what gets lost is that expense on the other side. And that, like what you talked about, the exposure and lack of sleep and the the inability to recover. You know, I think I shared this with you before as well. One of the, one of those researchers that's working really hard in the sleep space from Emory Riddle, um, you know, when you're, when you you you've you've had a busy forty eight and you're coming home and um and you but you didn't work out on your forty eight and so you're you've got this this decision tree in front of you of I'm so tired of to sleep but should I work out you should always sleep every single time you should sleep right because you know as well as I do there's no value in that workout you're exhausted you need to sleep and I think but that really is just a great thing to hold on to is like how valuable sleep is to us and how how we we um. You know, you hear it too. I, how many times have you heard in the firehouse, well, I'll sleep when I'm dead, right? And 
like what a <laughs> that that could be true and right? a lot sooner than you realize um, yeah so that so for sure the pie in the sky is is that full full fourth battalion right and so how do we get there and um and that's where all of the that's where all the juggling comes in the air right um you know there it's easy to say well we pay you for 56 hours today if you go to 42 we're going to cut your pay like what how do we navigate those conversations right and i think we have to be more adult about it right and and it's honestly i think it's a burden that that we have to bear is no, we need to address it and we need to keep pay where it is, but we also need to reduce the work week at the same time and concurrently. So how do, how do we make that happen? Well, it's interesting because that's the exact knee-jerk reaction you get. Again, that that unfounded fear from the membership. And I get it, you know, that that's kind of what they think. But then when you go to that modified work week, when you go to training, when you become the wellness director, you're working 40 hours, are they cutting your pay? No, you're still getting your salary. It's just your hourly rate on a piece of paper is now slightly different. But again, the proactive savings that you've made with all the things we've discussed today, when you look at the negative impact of sleep, and I've had you know researchers from the army, the navy, I mean, you name it, every you know sporting everyone, and they all align a hundred percent. Like you are mentally and physically destroying your your first responders the way that you're working them and if you're understaffed which you are i'm assuming are not with the the hiring that you have but so many of us are like my where i live now the fire department which i actually volunteered with for literally a heartbeat like a, a few months um they've just had two suicides within three weeks of each other they're sixth in four years and they're not a big county at all rural county um but they are working 56 no kelly and mandatories like almost every other week so that's an 80 hour work week every other week so we have this and we talked about this before this facade oh i work one day on two days off no you work three days on one day off three eight hour days crammed together with a day off you know because the second day you worked eight before you went home and then a day off and then you're back at it again i work 10 days a month no you work 30 days a month so we've got to stop telling ourselves this we got to ask the question, why are the people that are driving lights and sirens and jumping into burning buildings and cutting people from cars and working out pediatric mega codes, we're fine with being chronically overworked, but the person who makes you a cup of coffee in Starbucks taps out at 40 hours. It makes no sense. So understanding the huge financial impact of the physical and mental ill health of our people on the back end with workman's comp and medical retirements and mistakes that we make and the lawsuits applied to that, that's where our money is. But just like you guys have done with the other areas, the fire service has to understand we've got to invest in our people. And we keep talking about, oh, you know, we're, we're a business, you know, business model. Okay, well, then I disagree. But if you want to look at the fire service as a business, then don't choose, you know, this Chinese alley company. Choose Google. Choose Virgin. Choose these other business companies that invest in their people. You know, so it, it's... We've devolved, like our calls have gone through the roof and we've kept the work week the same as when we were smoking cigars, playing cards and patting the Dalmatian. So we have to take a step back and look at the EMS fire world that we live in now and the 911 abuse and realize that we have to work, as you said. I mean, the, to me, the 2472 should be the gold standard across the country. If someone doesn't work as much, good for them. You know, I tell people the security guard in your apartment complex, do you expect them to be fighting with bad guys the whole time that you're living there? No, they're, you know, right. if you, you need them right. when you need them and they shouldn't have to justify some downtime. Yeah, it's a hard, it's a hard path to walk from the perspective too of, um, uh, you know, like I, I talked about how 
really embracing that four day off, right? And so going even to a 48 hour work week, right? 24 on and 48 off. I still think that would be progress in the right direction, right? We've reduced the work week from 56 to 48. And I think when you look at that on on paper, longitudinal over a 20-year career as a 56-hour employee, you compare that to a 48-hour work week, that's 17 years. That's three years less of exposure. That's three years less of bad sleep. That's three, you know, when you look at it over time and I think it's a it's a bridge to getting where we want to go, but it's a hard, it's definitely a hurdle, right? Is losing that those consist consecutive days off and so it's a it's a it's a conundrum right it's a puzzle and um but some place where we we have to meet in the middle and i appreciate labor and 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 men and women's perspective of well how are we going to get and what are you going to give me to get me there and and those kind of things but i think at some point no, no different than our than our program that collaboration has to come back of labor and management agreeing not just the hey tomorrow let's go to this schedule but what are we going to do in 25 and 26 and 27 to make sure that this, this 2472 can happen? What, how are we going to, what does this progress going to ensure that fourth battalion is, is, is put in place? Absolutely. Yeah. Cause I mean, that's the thing that the piecemeal isn't going to work. I worked 2448 with a Kelly in my last place and it's just as brutal. It's a 56 hour work week until you hit that Kelly day every three weeks. Apart from that, right. you're getting your ass handed right. to you. And then again, with the mandatory. So now it's right. a 4824. Right. You know, and now you're right. you're so right. dangerous being on the roads. You're so dangerous having a drug key in your hand because you're cross-eyed. Right. You don't even know what you're doing. So, right. all right. Well, then I want to hit one more topic before I let you go. Um, you talked about the the peer support and the mental health model. I, I love the fact that you've got EAP with you know only with culturally competent clinicians. I've heard so many horror stories of the Russian roulette that is the EAP system sprinkled in there as some good providers, but there's so many. So many stories I've heard of the, you know, the worst case where they've, the, the counselor has cried, the counselor has told them to get out. But then the most heartbreaking thing is how many stories will I never hear because that was the final nail in the coffin for someone in crisis. So just talk to me about, you know, you've touched on it a little bit about the toolbox for someone in South Metro from the mental health perspective. So the first piece is that, right, is expanding that EAP network. Um, and we had some momentum back in 2019 before COVID of, of men and women being vulnerable, standing up in front of, uh, in, in company meetings and, and telling, uh, telling their story and telling their story of treatment and success. And I think I shared with this with you before um, chief Baker and our former operations chief, Troy Jackson being present and telling everyone there that if they raise their hand and ask for help, they're not in trouble, that we're going to take care of them. So that's the first piece, right. Is, is leadership saying we, we have this. And um, the other piece in that, you know, that we're really trying to pivot a little bit here too from behavioral health to mental fitness. And so looking at it from another lens of just, just addition to physical fitness, there's mental fitness. And if you get a physical injury, you get this other injury, but you can recover from it, right. And progress and get back to that whole health. And so when we look at our modified duty program, so we have modified duty for mental fitness, right. So um, suicidality, true post-traumatic stress injury, um, you know, going through a divorce, like I can't just, I just can't focus at work and I need, we've created this space and opportunity on that side too. So not just the physical injury um, and, and a little bit more grace to do true case management. Hey, what do you really need? Like, what do you really need in this moment? And like what we talk about with sleep, I've watched it over and over again of men and women that have come offline and 
not on that that 4896 schedule and they've embraced their sleep. They're able, you know, so we get them in neurofeedback, which helps them, right? Gets that brainwave activity set, settled from arousal to sleep and sleep to arousal. And they're able to sleep again at night and they, they're creating a regular pattern and routine. So they're, they're able to recover just like we talk about. We know that science of just the ability to sleep is going to sometimes take you off that cliff of despair, right? And so just getting a good night's sleep, right? And how much that helps. And um, yeah, and again, you know, having a chief that supports us in that space and work. Um, and then, you know, obviously, like, like so many departments, we have a we have a robust peer support team, you know, I think our roster is around 30 to 40 members today. Um, and, you know, men and women similarly situated that that do the same thing for a living that have had divorce, bankruptcy, critical calls, um, you know, that network of peers that, that no one, you know, that no one else that's that if they haven't been in your shoes, they can't, they don't have that shared experience. We don't listen to them. Right. And so we want to, that's, that's what we want to have and, and see available. And we've really been trying to raise the bar in that group from just answering the phone to starting to develop, give them skill sets that they can share, you know, from, you know, using a stress continuum, you know, that, that, that military model of a stress continuum and creating a language around things like that. Um, the simple things that we've done, um, we have dogs, we have three, we have three service dogs. So we call them emergency responder service dogs. And we, um, these are just comfort dogs at the end of the day. And, you know, what a great, a great anecdote on that one in particular was our, the STEM shooting here in Colorado at that, at, at our STEM high school, that again, was, that was in our jurisdiction. And, um, as that call was happening and our dispatchers were taking calls from parents and kids at that scene. Um, one of the members on our team who who's one of the dog handlers, the dog's name is Champ. He he came by the dispatch center and he let his dog in the dispatch center in the middle of that call. And he just sat in the corner and watched the dog work. And he watched dispatchers with high anxiety and everybody's escalated on their calls, you know, pet that dog and come down a little bit. So it's just some of these, but it seems so simple, right? But to sort of see things like that be successful and and again, have a chief that yeah, but if you want to buy a dog, don't get me wrong. It wasn't that simple of a conversation. But <laughs> it's twenty bucks. <laughs> but yeah, but but to but to say yes to things like that and and be inquisitive and let us let us explore a, a things like that. Um, and then I think I shared this with you before, and I think that you had a you did an interview recently, and um, they talked about some some same people that are now here at South Metro. And so the other piece of that was we started looking at. Well, and that's where I think I go with more of the mental fitness approach is cognitive performance. And so we were introduced to a, a gentleman down at, in Fort Carson in Colorado Springs embedded in a special forces group who was a sports performance psychologist, right? But the cognitive performance specialist and that deployed with those soldiers as special forces group. And once we were introduced to him, we asked him that question is, hey, what, what you do down there, can you do that up here with us at the fire department? And so we brought him up as a contractor for a couple of years and he learned our culture. He rode with all of our battalion chiefs, started riding with crews and we were able to hire him in February of 21. And so adding that other piece, all those things that we know that, that, you know, um, you know, that mental Rolodex, that ability to plan for plan a through, through D on any, in any given scenario, prepare people, you know, that, that, that same idea of training, um, training, like you fight. And so how do we bring that to the fire service? How can we get new company officers in a training environment, heart rate to 140 in the same old burn building they go in all the time. Right. So that, so that when that, when that new company officer, that very first call at three in the morning, that's a party's trap fire 
when their heart rate goes to one one fifty, well, we've already let's already put them there in the training environment. Let's get let's get men and women equipped. And again, it goes it all dovetails together, right, with a fitness standard. Because if I'm conditioned, and then I train like I fight, then I'm prepared when things go wrong, right? And that's it, it, that's just how it all comes together. And then we also know that if we give men and women skill sets to control their breathing, um, visualization, and all of these other skills. Um, we know they're going to be a bit more resilient in everyday life as well, right? We know that when they do see, and so you create this environment of peers that are being willing to be vulnerable and tell stories. And so, you know, if you see something or feel something, you could, you can tell somebody, right? You know, um, I mean, I never, I never would have thought in a hundred years that I would talk about Columbine high school on a, you know, like with, 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 and, and I don't feel like we're strangers, but you know, um, those, I, you just don't think that you would share uh, when I went through my divorce being, I went through a divorce because I couldn't assimilate when I got home. I had all these things I bundled up. I didn't know how to talk about at home. And so like all of us, you're hypervigilant, you hold all those things and it led to disruption in my marriage. And, um, but the ability to go through that, learn from it and then share it with my peers, right? Why it's so important to diffuse, why it's so important to share your experiences, why it's so important to tell your spouse what you do and how your spouse, what you feel, give your spouse a language to ask you questions. Like it, this is all, for me, it just all comes together. Right. And, but I guess I, I would think back to that where, where, where you started when we, you asked about my grandfathers and these two, you know, stoic men, they were both six foot three and they were these giants of men that I look up to, but they, cause they were so strong and quiet. And, um, but I think what I'm starting to recognize and maybe you are as well is that, that we are men and it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to, to share our stories. And, and um, because that, that's really, that's courage, right? That's what cur- being courageous is, is, is not keeping it all in, but, but, but share our stories. So. I couldn't agree more. Well, that's a beautiful place to kind of wrap this all up. So I'm sure people are fascinated. I'm sure there's a lot of people that I hope this conversation has brought solutions to a lot of the problems that they've experienced. I know it certainly did in the departments that I work for. So where are the best places for people to find you and reach out to you personally? Oh, my, for sure, LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. So you can just, you can find me on LinkedIn easily. Um, I've, I, I was pretty oblivious to what LinkedIn really is, right? And, and now that I'm on it and the connections that are there and the people that are collaborating in the same space, I think, it, so I would encourage people to get on there if they're interested in, in the, being in these spaces, right? Because you're, you're seeing the science come out firsthand. You're connecting with the researchers. You're connecting with, with uh, men and women like us that are trying to, to make it better for, for folks around us. And then people can email me directly. Um, it's chris.macklin at southmetro.org. Um, and I'll, yeah, I, we, just like you, James, I talk to, I talk to people from around the country once or twice a week that are, that are interested in doing what we're doing. And, um, uh, it's all about, it's all about making it better for everybody around us. And I don't have any, um, we don't have any secrets and we're, and we're, we want to share whatever we can do. And we want to learn, like I shared with you before, we look over the fence all the time. We've looked at healthcare. We've looked at the military. We look at what other folks are doing as well, because we know, we don't always have the answers in our own, right in our own backyard. So, Well, Chris, I want to say thank you. I mean, thank you to you and your department and everyone that's kind of forged this incredible, um, you know, organization that you've got now, one that people are lining up to be a part of, one that people are having long, healthy careers in. But as you said, there's so many solutions that you guys have found from other people as well that are 
you know, are fixing issues that we all suffer from. And of course, there's the financial element, you know, and so, oh, well, it's different over there. Yeah, I get it, you know, but we can still pull ideas from these different departments. You might be rural, they might be urban, but we can still knowledge share. We can still have some sort of kind of transfer and some ideas, even if you can apply it in your own way. So I just want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you, James.